Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we ask for your help this morning that you would illuminate this passage to us, that you would enlighten our hearts to more of you, that we would live as a unified body. Amen. We've been going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I hope one of the things that you have noticed so far is how the gospel comes alive to Paul. The gospel becomes 3D. Paul is a a gospel man. He eats, drinks, and breathes the gospel because he's been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. His heart has been pierced by the love and mercy of God. If you remember, Paul was a Jewish man. He was a self-proclaimed Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous 
to the law, meaning he wanted to keep the law perfect. He bragged about being a persecutor and hater of the church. And it is this man whom God willed to be an apostle. It is this man that God displays his forgiveness. It's this man that God shows us his great power in saving sinners. A Jewish man who hated Gentiles and hated the church. So wouldn't it have made sense if God would have sent Paul a Jewish man, then to the Jews. Paul was a master in the Old Testament. Wouldn't it have made more sense if God would have sent Paul, a master of the Old Testament, to the Jews? This is another thing that God likes to do, is that God likes to display his glory by using his people in the most unordinary ways to display his extraordinary grace. And so because God likes to do that, he doesn't send Paul to the Jews. Paul becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. And on one of Paul's missionary journeys to a Gentile city, Paul finds himself in the city of Ephesus. A pagan city, a city that worshipped pagan gods, the goddess of fertility, primarily being the big one. The goddess of fertility was so loved and worshipped that one of the seven wonders of the worlds was dedicated to her. A great and big temple was established for people to come and worship this false god. And yet while Paul is in Ephesus, reasoning, sharing the gospel, going door to door, teaching what Jesus Christ has done to these pagan Gentiles, they come into contact with the living God. Their hearts are changed and transformed by the same gospel that transformed Paul's heart. More and more were added to the point where the economy was disrupted. People weren't buying false gods anymore made of silver. There was a disruption that took place. Here, this this great Pharisee of Pharisees is now an apostle to the Gentiles. And we have here this morning a letter a letter of follow-up, of encouragement, a, a reminder of God's glory and their new family. So far, what we've seen in this letter is the reality of their spiritual blessings in Christ. The blessing of election, the blessing of redemption, the blessing of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. 
And because of Paul's pastoral love and his pastoral heart, he quickly moves into a prayer because he understands that humans have a limited capacity for divine realities. And so he prays for them. He gives them a model to pray. Pray, says Paul, to know more of God. Pray to know more of his love. Pray to know more of what he has called you to. And as Paul continues on in his letter, he, he's prepared for the question. Paul, do I contribute nothing to my salvation? I, I was told when I worshipped the pagan gods that if I did this, this, and this, then I would be accepted. And so Paul summarizes their conversion. He, he summarizes the conversion of, of man in a very dramatic way. He says, no, you do not contribute to your conversion. You were dead in your sins. But because of God's rich mercy and great life, uh, because of God's rich mercy and great love, he makes you alive in Christ. You were dead because of your sin, but now you are alive because of what Christ has done. Do you see what Paul has been doing in this letter so far? Do you see what he's been confronting? Do you see that He's trying to point out the power of God in saving dead sinners. Do you see that he's pleading to God on behalf of this church that this church would understand more of who God is? You see, Paul has been confronting our understanding about ourselves. Really, this is what he's been doing, isn't it? He's been confronting this idea that we know ourselves and better than God knows ourselves. You see, Paul understands, he, he understands quite well that humans love their freedom. Humans love their power. We love our autonomy and our self-sufficiency. And Paul has been challenging this very idea. Man's power and freedom. Man's autonomy. Paul wants it to be clear that God does the saving. God does the rescuing. And when you are rescued, you are rescued into a family. You are included as citizens of his kingdom, of God's kingdom, not your own kingdom. And isn't this what we all long for? Don't we all long to be included? Don't we all long to be accepted and unified? Don't we see this in the world, that the world longs for this unity? How the world longs for this peace on earth? How the, long, or how the world longs for wars to end, for global 
unity and peace. It's hardwired naturally into our systems to long for unity, to long for peace. But our sin splinters this unity. Our sin splinters this unity because we want our autonomy. We want our freedom. We want our self-sufficiency. So we enter into tribes that we are most comfortable with. We look for groups that suit our agendas and our beliefs. And so this is what Paul has been doing. Is he's making it clear that God is the one who saves. The, the power of God is the one who brings dead sinners to life. And so in our passage this morning, Paul then specifically points out how God includes the Gentiles as citizens of his kingdom. No longer are they strangers. No longer are they unfamiliar with the promises. Instead, they are included. There is unity. There is a place to belong. They were once outsiders looking in, but now they are not. And because of that, Paul speaks to the uniting reality that Christ's blood brings to Jews and Gentiles, different races. You see, Paul is saying that the free gift of eternal life is presented to both Jews and Gentiles, and because of this, this unites them together. And lastly, Paul then is going to make clear that this happens for certain because of the Holy Spirit. That upon profession of faith, upon from going dead to alive, the Spirit is placed in you to worship the same Father. You see, so this is what Paul is making so clear to us this morning. That unity is made possible by the blood of Christ. Unity is made possible by the blood of Christ. Before Paul gets into the specific here, though, he says this, Therefore, remember. What Paul is saying as he's starting this next section of Scripture is something like this, In light of everything that I just got done saying, Remember this. Take notice of this. Therefore, remember. Remembering is really underneath every act of spiritual discipline. Remembering is really underneath worship. Remembering is so closely tied to worship that we hardly think about remembering while we worship. How can this be? Why is remembering so closely linked to worship? Because when you worship, you are remembering. You are remembering something, at least. 
Do not forget this. Don't forget that while you worship, you remember. So I guess the question is, is what do you remember while you worship? Are you remembering a Savior high and lifted up? Or are you remembering some ethereal experience that you once had? Or are, are you remembering God? Or are you remembering yourself? As you come to prepare for Sunday service, are you preparing your heart to remember what Christ has done for you? Or are you not? Do you go throughout your days remembering? What is it that you remember? Take this warning seriously. Please do not forget this warning. That those who fall away are those who forget to remember. Was this not the case with Israel? Is this not the case with some of the churches that we see? Those who forget to remember are doomed to fall away. Do not forget to remember. Remembering is so important, and this is why Paul is starting this next section with saying, therefore, remember. But now the question is, is what do we remember? There's so much to remember about God, isn't there? Is it the election that Paul talked about earlier? Is it the redemption? Is it the sealing? Is it what he said in his prayer? Is it that we've been dead and made alive? What, what do we remember? Well, in this case, Paul tells us. Paul tells the Gentiles here what to remember. That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, is, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, if you were just reading along with me, if you were listening actively to what I was just saying, then you would probably say to yourself, this does not seem very unifying. I thought you said that what this passage is showing us so clearly is that unity is from the blood of Christ, but Paul seems to be very blatantly telling them that they are outs. That doesn't seem like a very unifying way to start a unifying passage. It's almost as if he's bringing up a, a past grudge to a people that he looked at as dogs. How could this be? Why would Paul start this passage off this way? Why would Paul tell them to remember that you were on the outs? We must remember who Paul is. Paul is a master of the Old Testament. And because he is a master of the Old Testament, he is reminding the Gentiles of their former lives. Reminding them that they were on the outs. They were separated from Christ. Reminding them that they were not citizens of the kingdom. In fact, that they were excluded from the kingdom. They were strangers to the promise that God had given Israel. 
Now, the next question we may ask ourselves is why? Why? Why were the Gentiles on the outs? For what reason did God make them on the outs? This doesn't seem very fair that they were on the outs. But God has a specific plan. His salvation plan is very particular, very specific. And that's because God had specifically chosen Israel as his people. He tells them in the wilderness, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God had chosen Israel, and therefore the Gentiles were on the outs. So why does Paul want to remind the Gentiles of this? I've heard interviewers ask the question to those that they've interviewed, what keeps you grounded. You've had success in your life. What keeps you humble? After a a pause to deeply ponder the interviewer's question, the person being interviewed says, I don't forget where I came from. This keeps me grounded. This keeps me humbled. Do you remember how Paul starts the letter that we're looking at? Do you remember that he says something very closely familiar to what was said to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness? Paul tells this church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul is is now including the Gentiles into this promise. Paul is closely linking to what God says to Israel to now how God treats the church. Paul is including the Gentiles. This is the adoption process at work in the life of the Gentile. The Gentile is adopted into the family of God. The Gentile is grafted into the family tree. So why remember the Gentiles of this? How quickly pride creeps into our hearts. How easy it is to look at God's salvation plan for us and think that we've done something right. We must have said the right prayer to catch God's attention. Our lives must have looked a certain way for God to say, He needs to be on my team. We must have asked Jesus into our hearts in just the right way. 
which the temptation then comes in to look down at those who are outside the church or, or those who may be a little bit different than us inside the church with no compassion, with indifference, or even contempt. How quickly we forget that we were once helpless and without God. Why does Paul want to start it off this way? Why does Paul want to promote humility by reminding the Gentiles of their past? Because humility promotes unity. We could look at Paul the Apostle and and Peter the Apostle and see how Peter's pride of being a Jew led him to disfellowship with the Gentiles. But do you see how the Apostle Paul views himself as the chief of sinners? He sees himself not better than the next man. He sees himself on the same playing field. Paul was not afraid to call himself the chief of sinners. Here, this great Pharisee of Pharisees was able to be the apostle to the Gentiles because he knew just how much of a chief of sinner he was. This produced humility. So Paul is reminding them. He's reminding the Gentiles they were once pagans, irreligious, on the outside looking in. And this is true for us too. Before being born again, I was hopeless. I was on the outside. And so were you. Unity is made possible by the blood of Christ. But before Paul gets into specifics, he reminds the Gentiles that they were once on the outside, hopeless, without God. But as we move on, we see that Paul goes on to say the good news. He delivers the bad news, and then he takes them to the good news. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see here, so, so Paul is not all doom and gloom, is he? He doesn't just deliver the bad news. He may deliver the bad news, but he's quickly to follow it up with the good news. He tells his readers 
You Gentiles who were once on the outs, this is not the case anymore. This is not your standing anymore. You were once on the outs. When I came to you and you worshipped pagan and false gods, you were on the outs. You, you were hopelessly looking for things to fill this hole in your heart. This separation from God in your heart. You were once strangers. You were once aliens to the, to the promise. You and the Jews were two separate people. But now, in Christ, you who were once light years away from Christ are now brought near by his blood. Christ has brought you into this family. It was done by his blood that you were brought to this family. Paul has already said this once to us. He's already made this absolutely clear to us. In him we have redemption through his blood. You were once slaves, Paul is saying. You were on the outs and slaves to your passions. But because of the blood of Christ, you have been set free. Because of the blood of Christ, you now have a new family. It was because of the blood of Christ that you are now so uniquely united with Israel. You were once two people, and now you are made one. There has been a lot of talk of inclusivity lately. You don't have to scroll very long on whatever site that you get your news from or flip through the paper or walk through a school hallway. It seems that now, more than ever, people are having conversations and asking how, as a nation, how, as Humans, can we seek to be united? How can we take our divisions and become unified? Some have suggested that unity won't take place until tolerance is elevated. But it almost seems that as much as this conversation about unity is taking place, we are seeing more disunity. It's a good and noble thing to talk about unity. I have mentioned this already. We were created for unity. Because we bear the image of God, we desperately desire to be unified. This was mankind's state before sin, being unified with one another, selflessly loving one another, selflessly serving one another. 
More importantly, serving and loving God. We are uniquely hardwired to be unified because we see this unity take place in the Trinity. There is perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So it should make sense that we are desiring to find unity. We are people created for unity. So why, as much as we are looking for unity, does it seem like we are only getting less and less unified? If you are here today and you are not a Christian, and you agree with this idea that unity won't be achieved until tolerance is elevated, may I suggest just one thing humbly. There is nothing more unifying than the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ tells us that we are all in need of a Savior. The blood of Christ tells us that we are all on the same playing field, dead in our sins and trespasses. No one person is elevated more than the next. Now, look, you may see good men and women, and I will admit there are good men and women. But in the attempt to pursue unity, what we don't take into consideration is the sinfulness of men. It's the sinfulness of women. We desire to chase after our own passions, our own flesh. And in our attempts to achieve unity, we separate ourselves, elevating our cause or our unity as more important than the next. These are the implications of the gospel, is that nobody can keep the law of God. Nobody can be morally acceptable. We may do good things, but we all fall short of the glory of God, and because of that, our unity will always be fractured. And this is why, as Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, who is surrounded by pagan idolatry, who is trying to be wooed back into their old and former lives, Paul is telling them, do not unify over pointless things. You are unified by the blood of Christ. Are you here this morning looking to be unified, looking for a place to belong? You will find no other place that you will truly feel like you belong other than the church. Because the church, through the blood of Christ, we are unified as one body. We are unified as one person, rich, poor, black, white, The blood of Christ unifies us as people. It is because of the blood of Christ that we are unified. It's ultimately because of the blood of Christ that we are unified to God. If this is you this morning who is looking to be unified, to be accepted for who you are, Turn to Christ. 
Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. The gospel tells us that all of us are in need of a Savior. Turn to Christ. Let me say it like this, if maybe you're still having a hard time with this. God truly accepts all sinners who confess him as Lord and turn from their sin. There is not one sinner that has ever been excluded from God's saving grace who comes and trusts in him. This here is what Paul is telling the church. That the church is to be marked with unity and peace. Unity and peace because they have peace with God. Because they have peace with God, they are to have peace and unity with one another because the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, it has killed the hostility between the two groups. It has killed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You see, Jews and Gentiles could not have been any more different. These were rivals. These were rivals who tried staying away from one another as much as possible. There was no commingling that took place. Their hatred for one another flowed through their veins. However, the same message that was preached to the Jews, that is, peace with God, is the same message that was preached to the Gentiles, that is, peace with God. And so, the two become one. We can look to a marriage to illustrate this point. There is not one couple who enters into a marriage that is unified from the get-go. In, in fact, this is where most of the arguments take place in the first few years because there is disunity. One person came from a background and was taught things one way. Another person was, comes from another background and is taught things a different way. There are differences in how conversations are approached, to raise kids, to have arguments. And yet when people enter into a marriage, the idea is, is that they are entering in, they are becoming two separate people, or two separate people are coming in as one whole person, unified. This is what's taking place here. This is what happens when you trust in Christ. You enter into a marriage. You go from being an individual to having a family. Are you here this morning not living with peace with one of your brothers or sisters? Are you here this morning? And are you not living in unity with a brother or sister? It is your obligation to seek peace with them. You who were once on the outside looking in, who now has peace and unity with God, 
It is your obligation to now seek peace and unity with your brothers and sisters because this displays the gospel to the world. You have been united by the blood of Christ to those who have also been united to God by the blood of Christ. Church, we must seek to be a unified body. If there is a person that you are harboring resentment, unforgiveness, anger, or malice, it is your duty to seek peace and to live at peace with them. Peace is not ignoring sin. Peace is confronting sin or confessing sin. Let me ask you this question in another way, maybe. Are you just pursuing peace and unity with those who are the same as you? Are you just pursuing peace and unity with those who are the same age as you? Who are a part of the same life group or small group as you? The same social or economic sphere you are in? The same common interests as you? Because we have been united by the blood of Christ, and we have the same Spirit in us that worships the same Father. This is killed. It's destroyed. Hostility. We must be a church that is unified by one common interest and one only. That is the blood of Christ. Because we have unity by the blood of Christ, we seek to be at peace with one another as a church, not separating ourselves into little cliques or comfortable cliques or isolating ourselves from those that maybe are a little difficult to get along with. Because we see lastly that because Jews and Gentiles have been united by the blood of Christ, they are now the same. They're citizens of the same kingdom. They're being built up into a dwelling place, a temple. This is what Paul says. This is how he concludes this portion. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see how Paul is finishing this portion of Scripture? Do you see how he's trying to unite these two people, the Jews and the Gentiles? Gentiles, you who were once strangers, you who were once foreigners, outsiders, who were excluded as citizens because of the blood of Christ, that is not the case anymore. They've been made fellow citizens, a part of the same kingdom of God as the Jews. They are partakers and fellow heirs. 
What Paul is describing here is, is something like what foreigners go through when they are seeking citizenship of a country that they were not born into. Gentiles were not born into Israel. However, upon trust in, in Jesus and the Spirit's sealing, they go from strangers to citizens. And this was the case for you too. This was the case for me. Upon profession of faith, you go from a stranger. I went from a stranger to a citizen. But we must know this vital truth, which I think is plaguing the church right now. You were not saved merely into an individualized relationship with God. We must fight against this idea of this individualized, personalized, packaged relationship with God. This is what Paul is trying to say to the Gentiles at the end. You were not saved individually for your own isolation. You were saved into a family to be built up into a temple with other people. This is why Paul uses this illustration here, that the apostles and the prophets, they, they laid the foundation of, of prophesying about Jesus and explaining the teachings of Jesus, that, that Jesus is the cornerstone, that if you were to take Jesus out, that, that the church would, would crumble. But Paul is also implying that each believer as an individual brick is laid up for the building of God's kingdom. You, your life has an intended purpose. God has not saved you to be a brick a hundred miles away from the temple. A brick all by yourself worshiping. No, God has saved you and rearranged your life to place you in his family. Church, God has saved you and intends to display his glory through the church. He takes bricks and blocks like us, as different as we are, to display his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the cornerstone. Build us up into one united people. Help us here to be united by the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ. Amen.